As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business. From liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Welcome to Odd Lots. I'm Tracy Alloway, Executive Editor of Bloomberg Markets. And I'm Joe Weisenthal, Managing Editor of Bloomberg Markets. Joe, I am so glad to have you back. It's Be- great to be back, Tracy. I'm so, this is where I'm naturally most comfortable <laughs> chatting with you about issues in markets and econ and finance. So glad to be back on Odd Lots with you. Aw, uh, well, that's nice. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, I'm glad that you're back today specifically because I think we have a show that you're going to be really interested in. Oh, really? Yes, because I know that you like the intersection of markets and finance and politics and sort of public mood. And boy, are those the topics of discussion for today. A hundred percent. You know, you edit a lot of the stuff I write and I try to in, I try to bring in politics and public right. stories all the time. So anything that hits at all those stuff, I like. So what are we going to talk about? All right. Up for today, we have two of Bloomberg's finest journalists. We've got Omar, I'm going to mispronounce this, Valdemarson, and Edward Robinson. And they have just written a great story about Iceland, which you might know as the tiny uh, sort of frozen island country in the Atlantic. But it's also special because it's the only place that has actually sent any bankers, high-level bankers, to prison. I've been to Iceland. It's a beautiful country. They have the best hot dogs in the world. And as you know, not only have they did they send bankers to prison after the economic crisis, it's one of these the Icelandic financial story is one of these stories that just kind of goes on forever, every once in a while popping back into the news. And as we you said in the beginning, it's fascinating because it, you know, it's this tiny country, just over 300,000 people. It's kind of it's an exaggeration, but not much. Everyone sort of knows each other. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's been fascinating to see this tiny country deal with the, um, you know, they had deal with the post-crisis era. And um, right. there have been a lot of interesting uh, twists and turns along the way. So they had a massive banking crisis, a massive financial crisis, and now they are still, years later, dealing with the aftermath. And to your point, Joe, this week... And I should say, we're recording this slightly early, so things could change. Um, But this week, we saw Iceland kind of shoot into the headlines again because of one thing, and that is the Panama Papers. Right. It's prime minister, uh, according to these leaked documents, had connections to an offshore fund where he may have had investments in some of these collapsed banks. And that led to gigantic protests in the country and ultimately led him... uh, 
to leave his post and, you know, another turn in the political turmoil there. Right. And there is a thought here that you could make, or a theory, I should say, that a lot of the anger we've seen this week at the prime minister and the Icelandic government is a sort of continuation yes. of the outrage we saw in the aftermath of the crisis. Right. So there's this gigantic banking bubble for a while. Everyone in Iceland seemed to get wildly rich off of it. And then when everything collapsed, and we'll talk about that, there was a lot of frustration at the elites, both in government and banking, for essentially taking the country on this very risky ride that not only damaged the economy, but essentially you know, damaged the fabric of society as a whole. Okay, well, let's catch up with Bloomberg's Omar Valdemarsson first. Uh, he's actually in Iceland, although I think he's driving in his car at the moment. So the sound quality might not be that great, but I'll leave that to our producers to fix. You've obviously been on the ground in Iceland for a long time. Tell us exactly what happened here. I guess I guess it all begins with the privatization of Iceland's banks in the early 2000s. In the noughties, I guess. The Icelandic government decided to, to privatize uh, two of its of its state-run banks, uh, and uh, basically, uh, at the time, it was sold to pol political uh, friends of the two coalition parties, which coincidentally are are the same coalition parties that are in government today. Those banks then utilized the good credit rating of Iceland because these were prime, uh, pr previously state-owned bank, and then they they still had. AAA rating with all the rating companies when they became uh, privately held and went on a borrowing spree all over the world. And uh, what they eventually did is uh, they accumulated so much debt that uh, their balance sheets were 10 times the size of Iceland's economy. That's amazing. So, yeah, and and a lot of the uh, you know a lot of the the money that they borrowed were you know short-term loans which were then lent to their clients over the long term. More than anything, what happened to these banks uh, when they finally collapsed, the, the short explanation is that they ran out of short-term funding. But the long-term long explanation is obviously that there had been so much cross-lending with these banks that uh, they wouldn't have been able to survive, although they would have maybe passed this hurdle that they came across in October 2008. So it sounds, you know, the story sounds pretty typical. Bank goes out with, it has a good credit rating, borrows like crazy, does a lot of aggressive lending. Did they, did people convince themselves that there was something special going on here? That Iceland had like cracked the code to better banking? Like, why didn't people oh, yeah. realize that it was, the story was this simple? No, it was quite extraordinary to, you know, in hindsight, obviously, uh, I, I was suckered into it as well, uh, just like pretty much all the uh, all of the Icelandic population into believing that there was something special in the way that Icelandic people did business, that we weren't too concerned about red tape, that decisions were taken at a faster pace they, uh, here than in other countries or, 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 or like our surrounding countries or the countries that we often compare ourselves with, like... Uh, the Scandinavian countries and this made us uh, better enough to make business decisions and seize opportunities when other people might be caught up in you know trying to calculate the deal 
towards the end before before actually jumping in. And uh, there were there were even you know the Icelandic president who is still the, the president at the time who is still the, the president now uh, held uh, speeches at uh, with investors all over the world telling them that this was a part of the Icelandic Viking spirit and all that kind of um, uh, yeah, hyped up language that uh, basically. Uh, facilitated the belief here that uh, there was something special about us. Let's dwell on the uh, Icelandic exceptionalism for a moment, because it was truly amazing how different Icelandic banks were perceived um, at the time and what they did, actually. So if you look, for instance, at the growth rate of Icelandic banks between 2004 and 2005, they were growing at something like 51 to 36 percent a year, far outpacing any other Nordic bank. Why didn't that raise flags for anyone? Well, it, uh, for, for the average Joe in Iceland, it, uh, it obviously didn't, didn't raise a lot of flags, but uh, we, we started seeing some criticism. The, the most vocal one came from uh, an economist named Lars Christensen, who was then the head of emerging markets at, uh, the head the economist at, in, uh, for emerging markets at uh, Danske Bank. And he was pretty much just executed in Iceland uh, in the public debate for being uh, uh, for being jealous of the successes of, of of Icelandic business people and Icelandic banks, and we all wrote it down to, you know, the former colonial rulers being envious of Iceland's successes now that it was an independent country. Iceland's banks were growing at a phenomenal pace in the sort of early, mid-2000s. And that growth ended up having a lot of impact on countries other than Iceland. And for those of us who were living in the UK at the time, you know, we can remember uh, all the ads from banks like Kaupting mm-hmm. about high-rate deposit accounts. Uh, lots of councils in the UK put money in Iceland, uh, lots of depositors, and they were all affected by the collapse of the banks outwitting bureaucracy, by moving faster, being flexible, building clients' businesses and our own, and have fun doing it. What is Kalp thinking? Kalp thinking is beyond normal thinking. To shore up their uh, the, to shore up their portfolios, these banks went on a on a on a borrowing spree from depositors in the UK and in the Netherlands and in more countries. Kaupthing um, set up accounts they called Edge, and Landsbank Island set up accounts called iSave. Uh, when these banks failed, Kaupthing uh, was more successful in in, uh, in in recompensating the depositors while Landsbankin found itself in a bit of a pickle and wasn't able to do that immediately which resulted in the UK um, using legislation which, which was meant to uh, uh, be used to tackle terrorist activities and put uh, Landsbanki on a list of terrorist organizations froze the assets of both Landsbanki and Kaupthing in the UK and this resulted in a huge uh, international dispute between Iceland and the Netherlands and the uh, UK. Um, that dispute eventually found its way to the 
EFTA court, uh, the UK and the Netherlands maintained that Iceland was, uh, was meant to cover the shortfall of the bank to depositors up to the minimum guarantee, which was uh, 21,000 euros in, in, the UK, in both cases. But the EFTA court then finally found that, uh, that Iceland was uh, right. It didn't have to shore up the accounts of Landsbanki, that uh, only the bank itself was uh, liable for recompensating depositors. And uh, through the liquidation of assets, uh, that has finally happened. So all the depositors were eventually paid in full. Um, so let's fast forward a little bit. The economy, the banks collapsed, as people probably should have seen coming. Um, because they borrowed so much. How, how did the aftermath, like, what did Iceland do in the wake of the bank collapse? Um, it was, well, what we did was basically what we were forced to do. The The treasury wasn't, uh, wasn't anywhere close to being in a standing that uh, could have salvaged the banks or, 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 or assisted them, like in some of the other countries like Ireland. So... What we, what the government did was, uh, you know, a frantic move which took out all the domestic assets of the failed lenders and siphoned them into uh, new, new banks uh, which they created, new state-created banks, and this was just done overnight. So the payment system was up and running. You have to understand that in Iceland, almost nobody uses cash here. People use payment cards, either debit or credit cards, for everything they, they buy, even something that's uh, at a cost of less than a dollar. They use their payment cards. So maintaining the payment system was absolutely crucial. There were obviously riots in the streets at the, at the time when the banks were collapsing, and, and if people wouldn't have had access to their bank accounts via their payment cards, uh, that, that could have gone pretty nasty pretty, pretty fast. So they did. They created these new state-created banks, and they put the the the, uh, the old banks with the foreign assets into administration. Um, so basically, it was uh, in a nutshell, it was a separation into good bank, good bank, bad bank. What happened to the people who actually were in charge of the banks? A lot of them, a lot of them actually uh, found themselves being prosecuted. A lot of the deals that they made, especially in the in the uh, in the last moments of of, of uh, in the life of the of the failed lenders, were deals that didn't stand up to the scrutiny of the law and uh, they were prosecuted and then they uh, found themselves in prison. The former head of the Icelandic bank, Landsbanki, has been sentenced to a 12-month jail term. Sigurd John Arneson was on trial for his role in the collapse of the financial sector in 2008. Two other of the bank's executives received nine-month sentences. The Landsbanki three were accused of manipulating the bank's share price by lending cash to investors on condition they purchased stock. The global financial crisis in 2008 froze credit markets and Iceland's banks quickly collapsed. All right, Tracy, so we just heard the story of the Icelandic boom and bust of the banking sector and that the bankers ultimately, unlike in other countries, went to jail. So let's chat with Bloomberg's Edward Robinson about the aftermath, why those bankers went right. to jail and what happened after that. Ed, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. 
So we were just talking about pretty much everything that happened with Iceland's banks and the financial crisis they had there. But the one thing that really sets Iceland apart from a lot of countries is that bankers involved in this crisis actually went to jail. Tell us how that happened. Yes, it's uh, it's a striking uh, story uh, because it is the only country where the top bankers, CEOs, chairmen, as well as the top investors, the top stockholders in many of these banks also were prosecuted, convicted, and ultimately incarcerated. And uh, and they got some pretty serious time. I mean, top bankers at Kalpthing, which was the number one bank in Iceland when mm-hmm. uh, the crash hit in 2008, got between four and a half and five and a half year prison sentences. And so um, was this a matter of they broke a specific law in Iceland? Was it something culturally that Iceland was more inclined to prosecute its bankers? What do you think distinguished Iceland, basically, from the other countries where top bankers yeah. didn't go to prison? I think there's a couple of things. The first is is political. And, uh, I mean, Iceland is small. It's 333,000 people. That's about the same population as the neighborhood of Flatbush in Brooklyn. <laughs> so, so it impacted when the crisis hit when the banks crashed it impacted every icelander and that's not hyperbole it actually did so purchasing power dropped by a fifth stock market crashed lots of icelanders had debts that in foreign currencies that they couldn't pay so the political repercussions were serious uh icelanders were throwing eggs and yogurt uh which is like this weird nordic thing at uh the parliamentary <laughs> building yogurt? So the, 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 the politicians there directly felt the anger. So politically, they felt they had to address this problem. And it wasn't going to be enough to issue big fines or kind of go after the banks institutionally, which is what we saw in the U.S. and the U.K. So that's the political so, dimension. But the, the legal dimension is that in Iceland and, in fact, in Nordic kind of Scandinavian jurisprudence, they don't use juries. So the prosecutors never had to really put together cases that could take complex financial machinations and simplify and present to a jury. And that's been one of the impediments. What was the specific crime that they went to jail for? Because people well, the, in yeah. the U.S. say, yeah, it was really awful what they did, but, you know, there really isn't a crime against failure. So what was the crime? In what happened with the Icelandic banks was essentially Enron. So all of the big banks were collateralizing their loans with their own stock. And then they were providing those loans to their number one investors, their number one stockholders. So the whole thing was predicated on the stock not going down. And of course, when it did, it's like game over. So you're able to use time-honored statutes to attack that. That's market manipulation, Mm. and that's fraud. I have a technical devil's advocate type question, which Joe is probably going to kill me for asking. (laughs) But you have basically the government uh, going after the bankers. You know, there's no jury trial. Uh, And in the same context, the government was setting a lot of the rules and regulations that allowed Icelandic banks to do this, right? For instance, Icelandic banks issued a whole bunch of hybrid capital, far more than was allowed elsewhere in Europe or in the Nordic countries. Was there any blowback for the government or the regulators for letting that happen? Yes, there was a lot of anger for that. I I mean, I think that's a really good point. 
I mean, basically what the government did is they deregulated. They took this kind of state-owned, very conservative banking culture, mm. and in the space of a few years, they they deregulated them, allowed them to go private, and that's what kind of set in motion all of the explosive growth. Uh, so yes, you're absolutely right. There was a lot of anger on the part of people directed toward the government for permitting this to happen. And in the prosecutions that have taken place, there have been a few government officials who have been implicated. So you mentioned earlier that even though these bankers have gone to jail, there is still collective outrage in Iceland, uh, which we've seen this week. And I should just mention here that uh, we are recording this podcast slightly early. Uh, we're talking days before it's due to be published. So a lot could be cha- could change. Yeah. But we have seen people, uh, as you put it, uh, throwing yogurt at government officials and government buildings. What's going on there? Uh, it really goes to this um, feeling, this suspicion that the game is still fixed. And they want a new government. There's 20,000 protesters in the square who are basically saying, we want a snap election. This government doesn't deserve to continue to be in power. And it's a coalition government, and they're trying to hold it together. Uh, And what's really fascinating about that, Tracy, is that the, uh, the insurgent party, the party that is now polling and has been doing so for the last year, is polling at the top. They're called the Pirates. Pirate I'm really party. fascinated by this. I want to. Uh, I, I want you to want learn, to join I, the pirate no, I, well, party? Well, maybe, but I want to learn more <laughs> they about are the pirate new party. Members, I think. They're polling number one right now. I love the idea that perhaps the pirate party could uh, lead the next government. One thing is striking. You say twenty thousand people have showed up to protest. Just yeah. for context, that's about twenty million equivalent in the United States, given how yeah. tiny Iceland is. What is it? uh, That's just an extraordinary number. How is it as a country that so many people get mobilized for something like this? Is it a cultural thing? How how do you get those kind of numbers out? It it is. It's like, um, I mean, imagine imagine if uh, the entire United States was the size of Louisiana, just Louisiana, and Katrina hits. That's what the banking crisis was for Mm -hmm. Iceland. I mean, it was just this seismic catastrophic. It's like the biggest thing ever to happen in the country since it broke away from Denmark, you know, 50, 60 years ago. And so it's personal. It's deeply, deeply personal for them. And that's why you see these protests. And and the protests that, w- that have happened this week in response to Panama Papers, the numbers are actually greater than the protests during the crash. So I think what that conveys is this sense of, you know, we're tired of the old system. And it's really interesting when you put it in the larger context of what's happening with political regimes elsewhere in Europe, even in the United States. And like, there's something, something really interesting happening with this idea that the old regimes are no longer useful. And that's why this pirate party is really starting to reap the benefits of that. And it will be fascinating if somehow they have a snap election and it wins the majority of seats in parliament. That'll be quite an experiment. Right. So, Ed, I was going to ask, in some respects, Iceland is ahead of other countries in terms of prosecuting the people responsible for the financial crisis. But even on that basis, people are outraged, perhaps more outraged than they were just a a couple years ago. Does that bode well or sorry, bode ill for the rest (laughs) of the world? Mm. That's a great question. I I think it speaks to this kind of just I don't know how to put it, but it's like it's like this deep-seated feel, like something is broken. That's I think that's the way that like, the sociologist we talked to in Iceland, we were talking about that. And he's like, look, what happened in 08 for all of the remedies 
that have been put out. And Iceland deserves a lot of credit for being swift and taking decisive action on in, in implementing these remedies. I mean, let's not forget, I mean, Iceland's economy is going to grow 4% this year. Unemployment is less than, you know, 2.8%. Mm. So on a macro basis, they're doing pretty good. Um, but something broke in 2008 in Iceland and in other countries. And that, that's what the sociologist is saying. is like that's what we're really seeing is that you just – you just it's broken something is there's this feeling that it's broken and that's why Brigitte Jean's daughter who is a co-founder of the pirate party and their leader in parliament right now she's she's a poet she's like friends with Julian Assange she's one of her first things that she'd love to do if she ever became leader in Iceland is grant Edward Snowden you know citizenship hmm. I think that's really fascinating what you point out about how solid the economy is low unemployment high growth I mean I remember thinking in the US after our crisis and then in 2010 there was the Tea Party wave and it seemed like okay this is a very natural reaction to massive unemployment and still so many people underwater on their homes now we fast forward several years the we're close to full employment in the US and now obviously in the US we have Donald Trump so it's sort of the same thing even with the uh, on the service healing of the economy something is seems to be as you say sort of broken in uh, society I think you know obviously you're seeing it across Europe as well yeah. just the improvement in raw economic numbers don't necessarily translate to people having confidence in their uh, institutions and government what do you think the next step is for Iceland what does the future actually hold well they've got two big two big events to come on the economic slash financial side uh, they've been under capital control since the crash and even though Iceland can sell its bonds overseas, and even though um, if an Icelander, you know, flies from Reykjavik for a holiday in Italy, they can withdraw, you know, euros in Italian ATMs and kind of move money that way. You can't, you can't drain your bank account in Iceland, put it in a suitcase, and you know, move to the UK. Hmm. Those controls are going to be lifted. Now they haven't set an exact date. But it will be very important for the country because it truly will mark, like, their rejoining of the international community. They're going to let the kroner float. That's a big event. And the second one is the two largest banks in the country right now, Landsbanken and Islandsbanki, uh, which are successors to the failed banks from 2008. They are now state-controlled. And the current ruling government, uh, along with the central bank, have plans to eventually privatize those banks. Now that will be an epic story because that process has to be transparent, it has to uh, be fair, it has to realize value, and given what's happened just in the last couple of weeks with Panama Papers, the trust issue with government, mm. that's going to be interesting. And just to finish up, I mean, Brigitte John's daughter, if she, if the Pirate Party do take power, they have vowed to stop the privatization process. Hmm. I have to say, I just really, just from a pure news fascination standpoint, I really want them to win. I know I'm not supposed to like <laughs> take sides on these things, but it's a good I think story, we all right? have to be rooting to see what happens when it's, the Pirate Party takes yeah. over. When the pirates country, come right? to power. I mean, we have when the to. pirates come to power. Yeah, yeah. no, it's just it's for a that headline alone. Story. <laughs> all right, yeah. Ed, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. So, Joe, did you like that story as much as I thought you would? 
Uh, yeah, I love the story. I think my favorite aspect of the story is just this idea that Iceland is just this tiny country on an island and hardly <laughs> anybody lives there. And the idea of, um, you know, essentially what in the U.S. would be a medium-sized city all going through these gigantic economic and political convulsions altogether. The thing that amazes me is, you know, it's now seven or eight years on from the 2008 financial crisis, and we are still seeing the ripple effects throughout society. And I always feel like you and I were financial journalists, so we naturally think about it all the time. And sometimes I feel like we're biased and there's possibly other things to be thinking about. But then a story like this comes up and I think, no. This actually is a big deal, and we are still seeing the ripple effects in the wider society, uh, not just in Iceland, but around the world. Yeah, and I think this point that the economy has recovered to quite an extent. I mean, almost anyone in the world would be thrilled with an unemployment rate of below 3%. Growth of 4% per year is the envy of basically every developed country you can think of. And the fact that we have the, the Iceland has these strong numbers, yet still has this very deep frustration and anger, mistrust with the elites. I just think, you know, it's incredibly important from a broader perspective to understanding what's going on, you know, in the UK and the rest of the EU and obviously the EU, the US. So you made the point that it maybe is sort of like a, uh, a bellwether for what mm. could happen elsewhere. And I think that's certainly in itself a compelling reason for people to care about what happens in Iceland. Promise me, Joe, that if the Pirate Party does come to power, we will do an Odd Lots episode on the economics of piracy. I, yeah, I absolutely, we're going to do that. But I really hope we could do an Odd Lots in Iceland talking <laughs> to them. Because, as I said, I really want this to happen because I think, just from a uh, journalistic standpoint, it will be fascinating to see what happens. I think that's it for today. The article is called This is Where Bad Bankers Go to Prison. It's by Edward Robinson and Omar Valdemarsen. You can find it on Bloomberg.com or in the latest issue of Bloomberg Markets Magazine. I'm Tracy Alloway. I'm on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Jill Weisenthal, Managing Editor at Bloomberg Markets. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And uh, thanks for listening to Odd <laughs> Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.